All right, open your Bibles, if you have them, the Gospel of John, chapter 18. John 18, we're continuing to take a look at the life and the ministry of Jesus. And as we turn to chapter 18, today we're going to look at the first 27 verses. And I want to talk about a few things. The first one is the arrest of Jesus. And then we're going to talk about two trials of Jesus. And as we consider these events, we're going to consider what they reveal about who Jesus is and how we, as we hear about it, should respond in light of it. Now, it's been interesting, for the past five chapters, John has been covering uh, the night before Jesus' crucifixion, where Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. So from chapter 13 all the way to chapter 17, Jesus has been having a conversation with his disciples, preparing these 11 for what is about to happen to him through his death, his burial, and resurrection, and what's going to happen to them after he departs and goes to the right hand of the Father, promising to come back again in glory. And as he's been preparing them through instruction, in the last chapter he prepared them through prayer, prayed for himself, prayed for his disciples, and prayed for all believers who would be impacted and influenced by the message of the apostles who would preach the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And now it's time for him to be arrested. Now is the time when he is going to stand trial, be falsely accused, when Jesus is going to suffer, is going to be crucified, and he's going to die for the sins of humanity, offering salvation as a free gift to anyone who would receive him. And so chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, let's take a look at these events and what they reveal about Jesus. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, when he had said that to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that, they, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. <coughs> the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into it, the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. They led him away to Annas first, and he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. And the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I also taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples. 
are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. You know, as we get to walk through the 18th chapter of John, we get to see his arrest and a couple of the trials that take place that John records. And as we consider the arrest, first off, we want to consider what does this event reveal about who Jesus is? John writes this gospel, chapter 20, verse 31, tells us, in order that those who hear it might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they may have life in his name. And if you want to get to know Jesus and who he is, because John spends such an amount of time on the last week of his life and the final days of his life and the final hours of his life, take a look at these events, and very quickly you will discover who Jesus is. The question then sits in our corner, what will you do about it? Not just what will you do about Jesus in your life, but what will you do with Jesus as you have been given the commission to go and share him with as many people as possible. As we take a look at this event, his arrest, we begin with John introducing us to the setting. We learn that Jesus had spoken some words referring to what he's spoken chapter 17. Jesus had prayed for himself, had prayed for his disciples, had prayed for all those believers who would be impacted by the gospel, including us. And as he prayed, the purpose of his prayer, if you recall, was in order to pray the will of the Father, but was also to encourage his disciples who got to listen in on the prayer. He prayed for himself that he would be glorified and that the Father would be glorified. He prayed for his disciples that they would be kept and that they would be sanctified by the truth of his word. He prayed for all believers who would be impacted by the apostles' doctrine, that they would be unified. He prayed for their unity and their company, if you remember. Jesus said, I pray that they will be where <coughs> I am. And now, having said these words, the time has now come. You know, all throughout John's gospel, Jesus says again and again, it's not yet time. You know, when the tension is continuing to rise between him and the Jewish officials, the time has not yet come, but now the time has come. Judas, during that last meal, during the last supper, as they were having that conversation in the upper room, has departed, has betrayed Jesus, and he's on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus needs to be there because Jesus is actually planning everything going on behind the scenes. This is no surprise to Jesus. And so as these events are unfolding, it's now time for him and the disciples to pass over the brook Kidron or the valley of Kidron. And as they pass through, get to the garden of Gethsemane. So the text tells us the setting. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron and it's called a brook here because during rainy times, the water would flow. Uh, but other times of the year, it would be dry. The brook of Kidron, the, uh, the valley of Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And so this garden, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, is probably surrounded by a wall. And as they enter through that wall, they head over to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, literally means olive press. And so when we're talking about this garden, it's really speaking of olive tree groves. And so there were a number of gardens there. This seemed to be one that Jesus went to often. After all, Judas knew exactly where to bring the Roman soldiers and to bring the Jewish troops who were going to come, the Jewish uh, temple guards. And so we're introduced to the setting, and the second thing we're introduced to is the activity of Judas. The last time we talked about Judas, uh, Jesus had given him some bread to eat, identified him as the one who would betray him, and Jesus, if you remember, said, what you do, do quickly. And as Judas leaves, Satan enters him, and he goes about betraying Jesus. As we're introduced to the activity, it picks up in verse... Two, and it says, and Judas who betrayed him. John wants you to know who we're talking about here. 
Uh, throughout this chapter, you're going to see it again. Judas, who betrayed Jesus. Let's make sure who we're talking about. Judas is the one who betrayed him. It says, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now, you have to understand this. The Jewish authorities and the establishment, the Pharisees and, this, and these Jewish leaders, they needed Judas. They needed Judas because they wanted to arrest Jesus, not publicly. They wanted to arrest him privately. There are a lot of problems trying to arrest him publicly. They tried in the past, right? Uh, sometimes he would slip away. It wasn't his time. Other times there was fear that there might cause a, a great revolt. And so the Romans were serious about this. They, meant, they wanted to keep the peace. And so they didn't want to take him publicly. They wanted to take him privately. And they needed an insider. They needed someone who knew where Jesus would go in the late hours of the night. And this is somewhere after <coughs> midnight. And Judas is the man who betrays Jesus. And Judas knows exactly where to find him. I, I like this, and I couldn't help but think about this. Um, do your closest associates, your family members and your friends, your loved ones, and those you're closest to, even those who might stab you in the back, do they know you as a man or woman of prayer? Because Judas, however he felt about Jesus, trying to just use Jesus for whatever purposes he wanted, he knew where to find Jesus. He knew that Jesus would often go out to the Garden of Gethsemane, a place of solitude, to, to reset, to re-energize and reconnect with the Father, to spend time in prayer and to uh, take time to instruct the disciples. Jesus was known as a man of prayer. Jesus was a man who, who was known as one who prioritized the things of God. And so Judas, when he thought, where am I going to find Jesus after betraying him for 30 shekels of silver, goes right to where he can find him. He knows he's going to find him in the late hours of the night in the garden of Gethsemane. Do you know if those closest to your children... They say, I, I know where to find dad. I know where to find mom. I know where to find my grandmother and my grandfather that you'll find them in their prayer closet. Early in the morning, late at night, those times when you're looking for them, do they know you as a man or a woman of prayer? Tells us Judas as he goes further in verse 3. It says, then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torture, torches, and weapons. Whoa. Judas has Roman soldiers. He's got Jewish temple guards, and they have come to arrest Jesus. Now, a cohort of Roman soldiers, uh, some scholars suggest, is a, a, a made up of about 480 fighting men. And you think to yourself, how ironic is that? <laughs> that you've got one rabbi, 11 disciples. One of them has, a, has a, a sword with him. We know who that is in a moment, Peter. But I mean, you've got all these soldiers who've come to arrest a rabbi and his 11 disciples, at least 480 fighting men. How many more temple um, uh, guards who have come alongside of them? You could... Uh, estimate this at 600 people and so they probably surround the garden the outside wall and some come in as we're going to see in a moment and they come to arrest Jesus why such a large show of force well from the Roman perspective the Romans uh, they they uh, govern with an iron fist you got to understand this. Romans, you didn't mess around. You didn't cause a disturbance. Now, when the Romans came and they saw you causing trouble, causing some problems, they came and shut that down. And if Jesus was somebody who was causing trouble, if Jesus was going to cause a revolt against Rome, they were going to shut that down. And nothing was going to get in their way. But, but when we see it from Jesus' perspective, do you know who you're messing with? If you want to come and fight Jesus and bring 480 fighting men, bring 4,000, bring the greatest weaponry that our world has to offer in the 21st century. Take a look at the show of force that the United States of America has to show. They are nothing in the presence of the greatness of our God. Now I know that. You go to like a text in Psalm 2. Let me read that to you. 
and you consider how someone might respond to this. It says, why do the nations rage and the people plot in a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Who do they think they are? Saying, let us break the, their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. What is the response of the Almighty God? It says in verse 4, he who sits in heaven shall laugh. <laughs> you see the, the nations rage. You see them show their full force, their weaponry. You, you see them show their nuclear powers. And God in heaven laughs. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep pleasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a, a potter's vessel. This is Jesus. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. They show this great show of force. 480 fighting men on the Roman side. We don't know how many officers and Yet this is Jesus, this is the Almighty God. If he wanted to bring down some angels to destroy these folks like that, they would shatter like a vessel, a, pot, a potter's vessel. And the text goes on to say, Jesus' response, it said, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things would come upon him. Okay, so is Jesus a victim? Doesn't sound like it. Was this a surprise to Jesus that all of a sudden he's going about his ministry sent from heaven to earth to accomplish the Father's purposes and all of a sudden here comes some individuals who come to arrest him? Is this a surprise? No, Jesus knows all things. Who is Jesus? Who is, who, who, who is someone who can know what's about to happen to him? Not a man. Not a prophet. Uh, it's God. He knows all things that are going to come upon him. And, and he doesn't hide from them. He doesn't run and flee. I mean, you've got 11 disciples and a rabbi. We don't have much to do. You run, you hide. It's late at night. Maybe they won't find us hiding in the, in the trees, in the olive grove. And it says, knowing all this, uh, he asked them, he comes forward in the darkness of the night. And he says to them, whether they can see him clearly or not, whom are you seeking? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said this, I am. Now, in my translation, it says, I am he. But if you look closely, the he is in italics. <laughs> you know why? It's not in the original Greek. Because the significance of this moment is powerful. Jesus says in the Greek, ego, I, me. What Jesus is saying, I am. Now, if you know your Old Testament, if you've been walking with us through the Gospel of John, you know the significance of this moment. Whether you know it or not, let me take you back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. When Moses, he goes before the Lord and he asks, Whom shall I say sent me when I go to free your people? It says this, chapter 3, verse 13, Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your father sent me, and they say to me, what is your name? What shall I say to them? I just wanted them to know who you are when I go talk to them. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's where we get the word Yahweh. Ego eimi is the same translation in the Greek. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am sent me to you. What a name, right? What's the name of your God? I am. It's like God saying, I exist. There, I have no beginning, I have no end. I was, I am, I am to come. And so when Jesus says this to them, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am. And what happens? They fall back and fall to the ground. 
Who's, who's with him, though? We know, of course, as all of this unfolds, Judas is standing with them. Jesus said to them, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Think about this. Judas, what is this man thinking? Three years he got to sit at the feet of Jesus. Can you imagine what a blessed opportunity that would be? Not just to read about him, but to spend time with him. To talk with him and walk with him. To hang out with him. To have him correct you and instruct you. And to encourage you. Judas had it all. He had the presence of Jesus. He had the teachings of Jesus. He had the best teacher in the world. And yet... He betrays Jesus and he's standing not on the side of Christ. He's standing on the side of the enemy. And it says here, I am he. And it says they drew back and with Judas there fell to the ground. I can't help but see Judas's face at this moment. I mean, if in heaven we get a flashback at what this moment looks like, man, I would love to see. They just fall back. It's a powerful moment Indeed. So you see the, the power of God because he is the great I am. Uh, I missed going back throughout John. We, we've talked about how there are all those I am statements. Let me go uh, to a, uh, a couple of them. Um, in John eight fifty eight to 59, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And if you were to look at that and say, well, you're just making a, a connection there. And I don't know if if Jesus is really claiming to be God in that moment, well, consider how the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders respond to him. If he was claiming to be God, whether these folks believed or not, they believed him to be claiming to that. In John 8, 59, it says, then they took up stones to throw at him. Why? Claiming to be God. But Jesus hid himself and went out to the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. Now, seven I am statements all throughout John's gospel. We've talked about those as we have highlighted each one. John 6, 35, I am the, the bread of life. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door. You know, he who enters by me shall be saved. John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 15, verse 1, and then again in verse 5, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Who is Jesus? Whether you respond to him in faith and receive the life he offers in his name or not, consider the testimony that we hear. Jesus is not just a man. Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is the great I am. As the great I am, the only legitimate response to him is to surrender our lives to him. To give our lives to him, to worship him, and to adore him, to fear him. You know, you come into the presence of a, of a holy God. You stand back and say, God, I'm a sinner. Isaiah, that was what he says. You know, I'm a man of unclean lips. Peter, if you know what he said when he runs into Jesus, who he believes to be God, he says, whoa, I'm a, I'm a sinner. You got to get away from me. Jesus is the great I am. He says, I am. They, they fall back. And then they get back up again, and Jesus asks again he says whom are you seeking verse 7 and they said Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus answered I can imagine as he answers again they're kind of you know oh no what's going to happen this time right I have told you that I am he therefore if you seek me let these go their way why does Jesus ask a couple times well he wants them to know that if who they are looking for are not the 11 disciples, he wants them to know they're looking for him. The time for his disciples to be arrested is not at this point. Jesus knows what they can bear. And we see that in verse 9, it says, that the saying might be fulfilled with she spoke, of, whom, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Jesus' desire in this moment isn't to shake their faith, it's to preserve it. 
Jesus knows who are his own, and he takes care of them, and these 11 disciples belong to him. Listen, folks, if you belong to Jesus, what a wonderful security plan you have. Better than any of the stuff the folks offer in this world where they will send off an alarm or call on somebody in time of need. We've got the security of an almighty, all-powerful God. We have nothing to worry about. These disciples had nothing to worry about. This is a moment for them. Ding, ding, scatter. (laughs) I mean, if if they're about to arrest him, you know, uh, don't take them, take me. And so it says... Verse 10, instead of scattering one of the guys, he gets a little bit anxious and uh, brave. And it says, then Simon Peter, having a sword, (laughs) drew it and he struck the high priest's servant. What was he trying to do here? He's trying to take off his head. But how many of you know Peter's a fisherman? Apparently not a very good soldier. (laughs) He misses. He takes off the ear. And it says that servant's name was Malchus. Why does John include the name of the servants whose ear is taken off? What's the purpose of this book? Why does John write it? In order that you might believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So as people are sharing the good news of the gospel and people are talking about the arrest of Jesus and the trials of Jesus and then the, the, the false accusations against Jesus and then his crucifixion on the cross and people ask, is this all true? I mean, is this just a story, a fairy tale that these disciples have made up? No, go talk to Malchus. If you want to talk to Malchus, it doesn't tell us here in John's gospel Jesus, what does he do? He restores his ear. Our faith isn't blind. We don't just believe in some fairy tales here. We believe in eyewitness accounts concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ during his, his, his life, during his, his suffering, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Go talk to Malchus. If we're making all this stuff up, why do you start naming folks, you know? I mean, we've got specific people that you can talk to to consider who is this Jesus. Um, If I could take you back, why does uh, Peter so willing to fight? John 13, 37, it says, Peter said to him, Lord, uh, why can I not follow you now? Because, you know, Jesus tells him, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to depart. And then he says, I will lay my life down for your sake. At least you can give it to Peter in this moment, even though he's misguided greatly. Um, He's willing to fight. He's willing to take out his sword and take this guy's head off. Listen, this is a capital offense. You take this guy's life, Peter, your life is being taken. You can at least give him that for his bravery. But then Jesus said right after that, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster will not shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Matthew 26, 33, a different account. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. And what does Jesus tell him, at least in the gospel of John? Jesus says, put your sword into the sheath. Why? Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me who's Jesus listen he's the director working behind the scenes arranging all of the events and working all of the details out according to his plan and to his purpose consider the sovereignty of God who uses the wicked intentions of the Jewish leaders and authorities of Judas who's betraying Jesus and Jesus as the sovereign creator of the universe as a director already knows how the events are going to unfold. Makes me stand back in awe and wonder at the greatness of our God at the greatness of who Jesus is. Jesus says, this is all part of my plan. I'm not a victim. I'm a victor. I am going to the cross to suffer and to die, to be a substitute, to bear the sins of humanity so that all who might believe in me might have the life 
that I will offer them a forgiven life, an abundant life, and eternal life. Jesus said, let me drink the cup that I will, the Father will give me. It's the cup of suffering. It's the cup of sacrifice that Jesus will bear for the sins of the world. Who is Jesus? As we've been talking about this first, he's not a victim, he's a victor. I hope you see that. This is not a mistake. This is all part of the plan of God. Secondly, he's not ignorant, he's omniscient. Doesn't take him by surprise. Jesus is all-knowing. He knows all of these events that are going to unfold. And he's the director working behind the scenes to accomplish them. And what a reminder to know that nothing in heaven or in earth can thwart the purposes of God. Not the ill intentions of the Jewish leaders. Not the betrayal of Judas. Not the denials of Peter. Not the scattering of the disciples. Not the chance to Jesus and the mocks to Jesus. Come down off that cross if you are truly God. Nothing can thwart the purposes of God. Thirdly, he is not helpless. He is sovereign. If this is who Jesus is, the only proper response to the text is to believe is to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah of old. He is the Jewish king. He's going to establish his kingdom and he's going to rule and reign for all eternity. Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of God. He's not just a man. He came from heaven to earth to accomplish the will of the father in order to redeem sinners like you and me who would confess him as savior and as Lord. Jesus is who he claimed be. But let me ask you this question. What do you and I worry about? And you read a text like this and then you reflect on it and you say, why did I even waste my worry? Can I open it up for discussion in light of that? What do you, what do you worry about that you shouldn't when you read about God's sovereignty in the midst of the events of the world and the events of our lives? Anyone want to share? Yeah, God's in control. Yeah, amen. Yeah. We worry about that sometimes. We say, is God really in control? Is he sovereign? Is he, I mean, how can you allow some of the governing officials to be in the positions they're in? How can you allow the events around the world to happen the way they're happening? Is God really in control? Oh, yeah, he is. On that night, in the eyes of others, they would have had other questions. Yeah. Anna, did you want to say something? Yeah. Yeah. Worrying about things you can't control that are beyond you and they're in God's hands. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Not that we're airing our dirty laundry this afternoon, but what are you what do you worry about that you shouldn't? So many things. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In the midst of the storm, in the middle of the valley, the darkness of it, it's tough to say. And ask, God, are you really trustworthy? Where are you at? Do you hear me? Do you hear my cries? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How we feel, it, it uh, plays a big role in that. We put our trust in our feelings. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, Elena. Yeah. Yeah. So... 
letting the Lord work through you, not getting in the way of the Lord and uh, following the lead of his spirit to guide and direct and to accomplish his purposes, Harold. Yes. Yeah, how to control people who don't believe um, as we share our faith with them and um, God's the only one who can touch a heart. Absolutely. Yeah. Or to change people who believe, you know, those are hard too. <laughs> Richard. What's that, Richard? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Can I really live a life of holiness, set apart to his purposes, with an ongoing battle with the flesh? I mean, whoo, the flesh is weak, the spirit is willing, certainly. And that even comes back to a moment, you know, not in John's gospel, but elsewhere where Jesus is with his disciples, and before all this happens, he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you can understand why the disciples are tired, it's past midnight, I mean, they've had a roller coaster of emotions. Jesus just told them he's going to leave them. Hearts full of sorrow, and they're just dozing off. And Jesus says, can't you stay awake for a little bit? You know, and it's like, well, Jesus, don't you understand? We're exhausted. But you have to understand, these events are about to unfold. Are we as apathetic as they were? Just completely ignorant of the times and what God is doing, certainly. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, Marianne. Yeah, so who's Jesus in light of his arrest? He's God. He's the Christ. He is the one who offers life eternal to anyone who will receive it. That life doesn't begin after you die. It begins immediately the moment you trust in him as your Savior and as your Lord. Secondly, uh, we get to see as the events unfold, as he's arrested in verse 12 and then taken to Annas, the first trial, at least John records. It says, verse 12, Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Jesus is now been arrested. His, his Roman ways, uh, his hands are most likely tied behind his back with a chain or some other means. Verse 13, and they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Listen, Annas is not the high priest. Um, Caiaphas is the high priest, but Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And when different Roman governors came to power, they replaced, um, uh, they replaced Annas with someone else. But Annas has still functioned in a position of power and authority. Why? Because the Romans wanted, uh, um, you know, when you think of a high priest, it's not one of the, you, ha, you, fill your, you fulfill your term and then, you know, the next guy comes in. Rather, Caiaphas was removed because the Romans wanted to control the Jews, control all those who were under their power. And here you have Annas, who still functions in a position of authority. Even though he's not the high priest, he has the authority of one, and he's related to the actual high priest, Caiaphas. And so uh, he carries a lot of authority. He carries a lot of influence, similar to that of the high priest. He's working behind the scenes. So they bring him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Who was Caiaphas? Now, it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. So whether Caiaphas realized it or not, earlier in John, we learned that Caiaphas was the guy who said, by one man, he's going to die for the rest of the people. And Caiaphas told that prophecy. And so that's, the, his, that's how he is identified. Um, and then it goes into uh, Simon Peter. And as Jesus is taken to come be, stand before Annas, it says, Simon followed Jesus, and so did a, another disciple. We give Peter a tough time, right? Always putting his foot in his mouth. He's always saying the wrong thing. At least he's the one who said, you're the Christ, Jesus, right? And we always give Peter a hard time. And even here, you know, as he takes out his sword and takes off a guy's ear. But he's, I mean, he's passionate. You better give him that. I mean, he's there. And as he takes off this guy's ear, he's also brave enough, unlike the rest of the disciples, along with one other guy, to go and follow Jesus. We can give Peter some credit. 
And so Peter and another disciple, who's that? Probably John. Now that disciple was known to the high priest. He was known to the high priest. So uh, however he has influence, his family has influence, uh, John has that ability to know. And he says it went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. And so um, when the girl at the door sees John, she says, come on in. We already know you. Peter, as he's coming in, whoa, 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 we don't know you. Stand here. Don't go in. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who is known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. So John goes to the door and says, hey, he's with me. Go ahead, come on in, Peter. And then it says, then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, as she's opening, go ahead, go ahead and go on in. John has said, you know, you're okay, you're all right. Wait a second. Aren't you one of the man's disciples. You're not another one of the man's disciples, are you? Because like John, we know he is. I don't know what's wrong with him, but he is. But what about you? You're not this man's disciple too. And Peter says these words, I am not. First denial. Whether you realize it in that moment, probably not. Not until the rooster actually crowed. But in the midst of all of this, Jesus had foretold, oh, you're going to fight for me for the end? No, no, Peter, you don't know your own weakness. We have a tendency to be like Peter. We like to point fingers at Peter and say, oh, Peter, up to no good. How many of us find ourselves of allowing our pride to come before our fall? Oh, I got it today, Lord. I don't need to begin my day in prayer. I got it. You know, I know how to handle this. I know how to handle that. Uh, I don't need the church family. I don't need this. I don't need that. I don't need time in your word. I don't need time in prayer. Right comes before a fall. We, we have a tendency to, to lose focus of our own weaknesses. And when we do that, we end up finding ourselves weaker than we realized. I am not, verse 18, now the servants and officers who had made the fires of coal stood there for it was cold and they warmed themselves and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. So Peter comes around and this detail is important. He warms himself around the charcoal. I, I want you to save this moment in your mind because when we get to chapter 21, um, charcoal is going to come up again. And this moment for Peter, as he's warming himself here, after he has already denied Jesus the first time and is about to deny Jesus two more times and fulfill what Jesus had said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter is warming himself on this charcoal fire. Can we jump to chapter 21? Chapter 21, let me begin in verse 1. It says, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. It's after Jesus rises from the dead. Peter says, Hey guys, I'm doing what I know, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat that night and caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Probably thinking, who does this guy think he is? Or the fishermen. So they cast, and now they were able to draw it because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom, whom Jesus loved said to Peter, who's that? John. John, really, he gives it to Peter, you know. It is the Lord. Peter, get these, put two and two together. It's the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, plunged into the sea. The other disciples came in the little boat, um, dragging the net with the fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw what? The fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some fish which, which you have caught. And what a moment where it all comes back to Peter. The charcoal, the place where I warmed my hands, the place where I denied Jesus and I was about to deny Jesus. What a wonderful little detail of the encouragement of Christ as Peter, who has denied Jesus three times, is going to be restored. This is the heart of God. This is the heart of our Savior. 
Jesus is the kind of person who goes out, according to the Gospel of Luke, again and again, who seeks and saves that which is lost. Jesus didn't come for those who didn't need a doctor, who didn't need some healing. He came for those who needed a heart transplant, who would come to the place of recognition that they are in desperate need of a Savior and apart from Christ and Him crucified are going to die in their sins and their transgressions forever to be separated from God and His people forever and ever. So Peter, in this moment, he denies, but there's fires of charcoal and they warmed themselves and Peter stood with them and warmed himself Verse 19, the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. You need to understand this. When Annas is asking these questions, he is not going about a trial in the way that it should be done. I want to read to you about some of the reasons why this trial is illegal. They're going about it at night um, in the Mishnah and scriptures first. Number one, no trials were to occur during night hours before the morning sacrifice. Trials were not to occur on the eve of a Sabbath or during festivals, Passover. All trials were to be public. Secret trials were, be, were forbidden. This one, definitely not. All trials were to be held in the hall of judgment in the temple area. Capital cases required a minimum of 23 judges. Uh, an accused person could not testify against himself. He couldn't incriminate himself. What is this? What is he asking here? Incriminate yourself. What's your doctrine? And who are your disciples so we can go after them and arrest them too? Um, someone was required to speak on behalf of the accused. Conviction required the testimony of two or three witnesses to be in perfect alignment. I want to read these to you so you know. Witnesses for the, pro the prosecution were to be examined and cross-examined extensively. Capital cases were to follow a strict order beginning with arguments by the defense, then arguments for conviction. All Sanhedrin judges could argue for acquittal, but not all could argue for conviction. The high priest should not participate in the questioning. Each witness in a capital case was to be examined individually, not in the presence of other witnesses. The testimony of two witnesses found to be in contradiction rendered both invalid. You'll see that. Voting for conviction and sentencing in capital case was to be conducted individually, beginning with the youngest, so younger members would not be influenced by voting of the elder members. Verdicts in capital cases were to be handed down only during daylight hours. Two more. The members of the Sanhedrin were to meet in pairs all night, discuss the case, reconvene for the purpose of confirming the final verdict and posing a sentence. Sentencing in a capital case was not to occur until the following day. Annas is with Jesus in the middle of the night. Maybe it's past midnight sometime, two, three, four in the morning, and here he is with Annas, and Annas says, what's your doctrine and who are your disciples? Waiting for Jesus to incriminate himself so he can just go ahead and get on with his death. And Jesus, knowing everything that's going on, answered, I spoke openly to the world. Jesus is challenging the manner in which this is a mistrial. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have done, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. If you want to know what I said, go talk to the people, the plenty of eyewitnesses who have heard me. I don't speak in secret. I'm not hiding anything. You go talk to them. I'm not going to tell you my doctrine or my disciples. In this moment, as Jesus responds to Annas, Peter is watching from afar, and so is John. And as these disciples are watching and as Jesus gives this answer, Jesus is struck with the palm of one of the officers standing next to him. And you can almost see it. He's caught off guard. It's probably from the back. He gets knocked. This is not just a slap. This is the palm of the hand. This is a nice punch. And you can almost see Jesus' head tilt back, blood perhaps come out of his mouth as he is knocked by this sucker punch. And the man says this, he says, do you answer the high priest like that? Put yourself in the shoes of Peter for just a moment. John for just a moment. 
Jesus has been talking about some of the things that are going to happen to him. Yes, these disciples have seen the tension rising between him and the Jewish leaders, but Jesus always seems to get away. Nothing like this has happened prior to this, and now it's becoming all too real as Jesus experiences that first hit. But it's only the beginning of his suffering. Jesus, what does he do in this moment? Does he come and headbutt the guy? Oh boy, would I want to. I can almost see Peter, you know, in the background, or John. Now they're fearful in this moment, and it says, Jesus said, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? If I have spoken anything evil, tell me. If not, why do you hit me? What's Annas' answer? Nothing. He sends Jesus away to go to Caiaphas, the high priest. Annas knows very well the proceedings are going on in an immoral manner. This is a mistrial through and through. Let me ask you this question and open it up for discussion real quick. And then we'll go after a couple more verses. Um, what's the difference between the denial of Peter and the betrayal of Judas? Because we just talked about Peter who's going to be restored. Any thoughts? So there's a sovereignty side of it. Yeah. So it's part of God's plan, sovereignty, prophecy. It's been foretold, certainly. And we think back to some of the, the chapter, we saw that, that um, Judas was referred to as one of the chosen among the twelve, and not all choosing is unto salvation. Anything else? Any other thoughts in terms of... Sure. So the motives, potentially. So you've got Judas, who's all about the money, stealing money, all about his position, you know. That's why he's following Jesus for three years. I want a place in his kingdom. And then he finds out all this is happening. He's like, no, thank you. I'll take my 30 shekels of silver. Um, you've got Peter, who has the right motivations, it seems. And then he, in light of his fear and his weakness, he betrays Jesus. Anything else? Any other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. Peter ended up repenting. Yeah. Something to think about. Yeah. So I'm here in sovereignty, human responsibility. There's a a uh, tension going on even in our text. And in the end, Peter, he is the one who confessed Jesus as the Christ. He's the one who the... Father opened him to the truth to know it. And so just an interesting thought. I'll leave it there. As we continue on, we get to see the third trial as Jesus stands before Caiaphas. And John, he just records one elsewhere. In other gospels, you see that there's a, a trial in the night and then one in the morning. It says, verse 28, then they let, or verse 25, excuse me. Now, Simon Peter st stood and warmed himself there. As himself, therefore they said to him, "You are not one of his disciples, are you?" And he denied it, and he said, "I am not." Second time, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him, a, rel a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, "No, didn't I see you in the garden? I'm pretty sure. I mean, I know Malchus. You know, we're we're uh, related." 27, Peter then denied it and said, denied again and immediately 
the rooster crowed. What a heartbreaking moment as Jesus is heading to his next trial and the suffering of Christ has only begun in our text. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? In light of our text, Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Jesus, yes, certainly is in Psalm 2 because we read it earlier. God looks at heaven and see those, sees people who, who shake their fist at God and think that they are going to stand against God or be able to fight against him. And God simply laughs. Jesus came the first time as, God, as a suffering servant. He's coming the second time as a conquering king. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and his suffering has only begun. Jesus is about to, to go, continue to stand before trials, be crucified, and then he's going to die on a cross. Uh, Jesus is also the suffering servant who did not repay evil for evil. In a moment when he could have or yelled at the other guy or even called down the angels from heaven, Jesus did nothing, responded calmly through the midst of it. If I could close with one more question, it would be this. Knowing that we are prone to wander and fail the Lord, how can you prepare for the next time so you don't fail again? Don't you think that was a thought on Peter's mind as he's restored by Jesus? Do you love me, Peter? Yes, I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Feed my sheep. Do you ever think there was a moment in Peter's mind, I don't want to deny you again? out of fear, in a moment of what other people are going to think when I'm surrounded in the workplace, in the university setting, when I'm surrounded by people who, in, I, it's hard for me to stick up for the, for the things of God and to say, yeah, when everybody's like, you, who are those, those nasty people who believe these things about marriage? Who are those closed-minded and uh, uh, those folks who, who don't tolerate certain things, those fundamental Christians, those are the worst. I remember my college roommate said that, and I said, hey, I'm one of them. You're talking about me. In those moments, how do you, how do you keep from, from failing again, from falling again? I'm tempted every day. I don't know about you if we can be transparent here. Um, I fall. Thankful for God's grace. How do you keep from falling again? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just feeding on the word and hearing it and heeding it. Walking in obedience to it. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? I need some advice because... I'll be tempted later this evening. Yes. Yeah, Ty. Yeah. 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 So if you have a temptation, a... Uh, a fleshly desire, look up all the scriptures and memorize what you need to memorize and go back to those scriptures again and again. Get your sword ready. Be able to handle, not like Peter, you know, he cuts off the ear and he's trying to get the head. I mean, use your sword, which is the word of God. Be prepared. Put on that armor early in the morning. Anything else you would share? Oh, yes. Get equipped. Uh, get connected with the power source Stay connected to the Lord through prayer. Yeah, Anna. Oh, yeah. 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 Just being reminded of the sweetness of his amazing grace and having a relationship with him and being reminded of the bitterness of life without Christ and living outside of his will and outside of his word. Yeah. And I'll leave it with one last thing. There's some, the thing that changed for Peter between this moment and when he's going to empower, proclaim the gospel message of Christ and thousands upon thousands come to faith, the Holy Spirit. And the, through the Holy Spirit that empowers him, enables him, that is what changes from the gospels to 
the book of Acts, and then you were in First Peter on Sundays, and you're like, is this the same guy? This is absolutely amazing. Can we close in prayer? Father in heaven, we come before you and thank you that you are a gracious, merciful God. That you are the one who goes out and seeks and saves the lost, and we find that in the person and work of Christ, who is an extension of your will, of your word, and of your works. Father, without a God who is compassionate and kind, who, who seeks us who are lost, we would still be in our sins. But we thank you for Jesus, for the suffering he endured, from that palm that hit, struck his face to the pain that he experienced on that cross. Bearing our sins, we thank you for Jesus. Father, I pray tonight that we would be reminded in times when we find ourselves worrying about things we shouldn't, that we would be reminded that Jesus is sovereign, that he is omniscient, that he is all-powerful. There's, there's nothing outside of his control in our life and in the world. We pray that you give us peace of mind in this moment, even as we leave this place and head out and go about our business. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would not just uh, indwell us, but that it would fill us, that we would come under the control of the Spirit that we would come under the influence of your spirit, as Ephesians 5.18 says. Guide and direct us, and Lord, allow this message, this truth, to not just ring true in our hearts and minds, but let us declare it to as many people as possible. We thank you for Jesus. May we taste the sweetness of what it's like to be in Christ, knowing what life was like prior. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.